Welcome to the third edition of the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. In this podcast, we'll be exploring experiences from an outbreak of strangles on a stud farm in the USA, along with current advice on worming juvenile horses. We'll be speaking first to Dr Undine Christman from Lincoln Memorial University and Dr Courtney Pink from Mid-Atlantic Equine Medical Centre about their experiences dealing with an outbreak of strangles. Firstly, Dr. Pink, could you give us a bit of detail about when this outbreak occurred? The first outbreak happened late March of 2012, and the height of it was April, May, and June of 2012, and then it tapered down a little bit, and then we finally got rid of the whole thing and identified all of our carriers and got them treated by about February or March of 2013. And quite a lot went on in between. So you mentioned that it was a stud yard. So at that farm, the majority of the horses were owned by the farm itself, okay. um, and it was essentially a closed herd yeah. at, that, that, at that point. There were other people who had their mares boarding there, but most of the horses were owned by farm. So, so at what point did you begin to suspect that there was a stranglers outbreak? The first inclination is we had rescued a horse from a kill sale. He sort of presented like as a bastard strangles, um, but we weren't, we didn't really think of it at, at the time. And then I had a mare that had a submandibular abscess and a really high fever, and I thought that was probably the indication of we might have strangles going on here. Yeah. Could you comment on how transferable this information would be to another yard situation where perhaps you'd have multiple owners involved? I'm not sure how transferable it is, but I think this was a very practical illustration of what might happen in this type of situation. This obviously was a very large herd of horses. There were over a thousand horses on the premises and we had a little bit over 60 horses affected with clinical signs. So in the in the literature, it's fairly rare that we see reports where such a large number of horses is is affected given that there were so many foals being born on these premises each year it was another challenge in controlling the disease so i think this case illustrate how difficult controlling strangles might be in practice and it re-emphasized how important quarantine and testing of horses before bringing them inside a herd is and unfortunately I think is that something that's still overlooked. It also illustrated the types of complications you might have with the disease. A number of the horses developed purpura hemorrhagica and a lot of those were the horses that were actually vaccinated during the outbreak. So that made us think that obviously vaccinated horses are more susceptible to that type of complication. It also illustrated how devastating the disease might be since there were several that actually died mostly of asphyxia. And then other practical aspect was that Dr. Pink used an antibiotic that is still very little documented in regard to its use in cases of strangles. And we think that to an extent helped in controlling the disease. 
And then last but not least, this illustrated how difficult it was in the end to find these persistent carriers during the outbreak. And obviously that was a very important element in controlling the disease. You picked up about some of the interventions that you used during the outbreak, one of which was the use of antibiotics. Dr mm-hmm. Pink, could you comment on that, how, the, how those were chosen? Because I see that there, there were a range that were used. Sure, yeah, and there, there were a number of ones that we used based on, you know, different people's opinions of what was going to be the best, you know, antibiotic choice. But we went through a couple of, you know, protein penicillin um, was probably the number one antibiotic we used in the beginning, and it just wasn't quite cutting it. The mares and the bulls were getting sour, their necks were getting sore. So um, on the recommendation from other people, we started using Exceed, which is a long-acting Ceftiofure, and it's not approved for, or it's not labeled for strangles yet. And it stopped it dead in its tracks. I mean, it really was the turning point of us being able to get on top of it and get everything turned around. I mean, we, we had horses who would get sick and then relapse six or seven weeks later. You know, we put them on, you know, maybe doxycycline and that didn't work. And then they said, hey, let's go with Exceed. And boom, it just, it, it stopped it dead in its tracks, which was really good. And it was really a, a huge game changer for us to be able to get rid of it. And then at that point, we knew we had carriers and we could go and look at carry, try to find our carriers without trying to keep dealing with these horses that were sort of continually getting sick. Interesting that you mentioned that there were issues where there was some sore necks, you know, if you're injecting procaine penicillin or whatever regularly and the foals were (laughs) disliking it. I mean, that's kind of practical kind of handling issues, isn't it? That makes it more tricky for the staff who are delivering the injections. Considering the fact that the farm and the herd was so big, if we could you know, give one dose on day one and then day four, come back four days later and give another dose, that really decreased our workload in the middle of when we were so busy with other other things going on that that, that was really advantageous for, for us yeah. um, and do it so we weren't in the stall twice a day, every day for days on end. Yeah, so it's much so less labor intensive. Yeah. With the antibiotics, I'm just interested because you mentioned that they're kind of old beliefs or perhaps things that Mm -hmm. commonly vets think around strangles. And one of the things that we were told quite a long time ago was perhaps to avoid the use of antibiotics with the risk of bastard strangles. Now, you did touch upon Mm -hmm. that a little bit to begin with. Do you think this is something that we should be wary of? I would personally say no because I think the threat of a strangles outbreak going through a herd is worse than having a case or two of bastard strangles. Andine, what's, what's your opinion on that one? That is definitely sure. something, and that that's what I was taught when I went to vet school as well, mm-hmm. that you know you should try to avoid to um, use it or try to use it really, really early on in the disease, actually, those two indications. And it might depend on the farm scenario, I would say, in Dr. Pink's case, you know, you can look at it 
the way that you know the, there was a very large herd uh, of horses and one or two cases that developed these complications are perhaps less important mm-hmm. than yeah. if you know you're, you're just dealing with a smaller herd but that's still one of the choices for veterinarians in practice that I think is hard to make and again it might be more affordable to get by without antibiotics if you're just dealing with a few cases because you can just pay more attention to those you can monitor them more closely see their clinical progression at least you know once a day whereas if you need to keep your eye on a larger number of horses that is something that becomes very difficult so what other things did you instigate did you have any other kind of biosecurity set up on the yard we did we did initiate some biosecurity we had foot baths and gloves and equipment had to stay at each barn and people were assigned to each barn. It was a little difficult to enforce because some of the people who were working in the barns didn't necessarily understand why they had to do the biosecurity measures. And we tried our best to educate them as to why they were doing it. But again, it it happened in the worst time of the year for us and we were super busy. So Mm -hmm. it was hard to sit down every week and have an hour long meeting about biosecurity and why it was important. But we, we did try foot baths, gloves. And when I was out treating the horses who were acutely sick, I would put on a bunny suit and gloves and, you know, change my clothes and all, all that stuff because I would have to go then and see new babies and yearlings. So we tried doing that. And you mentioned that some of the horses were vaccinated. Can you tell me a bit about the decision behind vaccination? Sure. So we vaccinated all of the horses on the farm with the exception of our retired mare herd and any foal that was under the age of one month. So everybody else got vaccinated. In retrospect, I would not do that again. Okay. I mean, you can probably comment too that I don't know that you're recommending vaccinating in the face of an outbreak anymore either. We just found that the horses were getting clinical signs because we use the internasal or modified live vaccine. And so a good number of our babies were getting sick vaccine. And I think they were probably a little young to get the internasal at that point. And then it was becoming confusing as are these horses really sick from the strangle strain or are they sick from the vaccine? A whole nother layer onto trying to figure out what was going on with them and then more horses that were sick. Yeah. Why was the vaccine started in the first place? Was it because of the sheer volume of cases that you were seeing? Yes, and it was on the recommendation of, a, of an internist that we should vaccinate in the face of the outbreak, which I think, I mean, you probably correct me if I'm wrong, is that that was more of like an older school thinking. They have a strangle statement, the ACVIM. People have been recommending that, but I think given our situation, I mean, it was floating around in the air and they have automatic waters in their fields. And the young one just couldn't handle it. But in general, it's not recommended anymore to vaccinate in the face of an outbreak, mostly due to the adverse reactions you might have, such as purpura and Mm -hmm. others. And that was already the uh, recommendations with the ACVIM consensus statement, if I remember well. But I think in this case, it was just an attempt to slow the disease down and maybe taking some risks at that moment in having 
secondary reactions mm -hmm. and you know then we learned from that so that is one mm -hmm. of the lessons that we saw and I just wanted to throw in here because we didn't mention is Dr. Pink was actually the only veterinarian at that farm so okay. I just yeah. wanted to mention what a huge amount of work and responsibility that was mm -hmm. for her given you know the number of horses the yeah. folding and and all that and trying to educate yeah. the farm workers at the same time about the importance of these of these measures yeah so it's quite a complex situation wasn't it to try and yes work them through over a long period of time are there any other options for vaccines is it only the live vaccines that are available well here in the US we have another uh, so-called extract or killed vaccine that's given intramuscularly but I guess from the vaccine point of view it's still tricky with strangles in general because none of the vaccines really affords perfect type of protection so it's basically just slows the disease down or reduces the clinical signs that are associated with it or the number of horses that are affected so we are still waiting <laughs> for a vaccine that can do better and then yeah. hopefully in the future gives the possibility to distinguish between vaccinated horses and horses that are unvaccinated but have the disease from a point of view of looking at serology results in those horses. Okay. I think in Europe and maybe in on other continents you might have other other options, but we basically just have those two right now in yeah. the in the States. Okay. With the purpura, you mentioned this, was it 14 horses that had purpura? What were the outcomes yeah. in those cases? So we didn't lose any of our horses to purpura. They okay. all responded. We yeah. did have one yearling who wasn't sick, but we vaccinated her and she was probably the most affected in terms of purpura and, and the vasculitis that, that ensued is that she slept most of the skin on all four of her legs. And it was really sort of debilitating to her for a while. But she ultimately ended up healing and just actually had her first baby the other day. That <laughs> part worked out well. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, it was she was a bit of a tough case. Yeah. She ended up doing okay. Yeah, well, that's good news. Could you comment a little bit about the testing that you did? You mentioned that trying to identify the carriers became a really crucial point. Yeah, so in, I guess it was December of 2012, January 2013, we knew that we had a carrier in one particular barn and we weren't sure who it was. And there were, I think, 53, 54 horses in this particular barn. And it happened to also be the group of horses that in 2013 we're going to go to New York to be bred so obviously we couldn't send them if mm. we had a carrier on the truck yeah. so we ended up doing nasal pharyngeal washes on all of them and then we sent them over to the New Bolton Center and they did PCRs on them to identify who was positive and then if we had a positive PCR then they would continue on and culture it to make sure that it, it really was strep equi equi bug and we did find one that had cultured positive half of her PCR in that group. So then at that point we flushed her pouches and packed them with penicillin and she came around and, and did fine. 
The other carrier we, we picked up was a random thing. She, we didn't know that she was a carrier, but everybody was on heightened alert because we'd gone through this. And I think this was March or beginning of April of 2013. She was being picked out of her field to come onto the main farm property to full. And the foreman had said, you know, Courtney, hey, can you take a look at her? She's got a little bit of nasal discharge. So I said, sure. And we did the nasal pharyngeal wash and it came up positive and then she cultured positive. We tried to flush her pouches on the farm, but she ended up having a bunch of chondroids and we ultimately had to have referred. Mm. So we luckily, because we had done, you know, some education with the staff that they were on heightened alert to say, hey, this one looks abnormal, maybe you should look at her. So we were lucky to have her because she was going to come onto the main farm where we have all of our foaling mares and then the new babies and stuff. So mm. we were pretty fortunate to catch her when we did. Definitely. That could have kick-started things off again. Right. So you mentioned quite a lot of testing to try and seek out these carriers. Is this quite a costly process? It can be, but we were fortunate enough that we were working with Dr. Ashley Boyle's lab at New Bolton Center, who was concurrently doing a study on the PCR testing. So it was convenient for us. Yeah. But it's fairly inexpensive, the test itself, and then do the nasal pharyngeal wash. It's not cost prohibitive to test. Part of the article mentions about the different states in the United States that have got different laws and regulations surrounding strangles. What are your views? Do you think strangles should be a reportable disease? I think it would be better to just have a uniform law across the different states. And I think, as mentioned, both quarantining horses and then abiding by biosecurity measures is something that in practice is very difficult to enforce and it's a very unpopular decision to make for any veterinarian and particularly probably in those situations where horses need to go to the competitions or need to be shipped and so on and so I think the fact maybe to make it a reportable disease and the fact that then a state veterinarian would be behind enforcing these different rules might help. How about yourself Dr Pink, do you think that there's merit in it being reportable, do you think it would make a difference to disease, the prevalence of disease? I think it would make a difference if it was reportable, but I know a lot of people do not want to talk about it at all, Um, and they want to keep it very hush-hush, but I think for the greater good of the horse and the equine industry, if everybody were willing to talk about it and share their experiences, and then it wouldn't be so taboo, and then across the board, people would know how to handle an outbreak or how to deal with it if somebody shipped into your barn at a riding facility that has it, then people would be better educated about it and it wouldn't be quite so scary and could probably help it turn out to not be a big outbreak and run through an entire barn. Do you have any other comments in terms of summing up what you think the lessons that we can learn from this outbreak? I think the big things probably to take away from it is one, not to be afraid of it, that we, you know, have it and definitely not to vaccinate the outbreak. And in such a large herd setting, I do think the antibiotic choice was definitely helpful for us to kind of stop it. And then one of the biggest things and, and what we were not good at doing before was quarantine horses and testing them when they arrived on the farm to know 
whether or not they were suspect carriers or stuff. And we didn't, you know, we were getting a lot of young horses off tracks and going through sales and coming to the facility. And, you know, we didn't know any of their history or where they had been. So I think biosecurity measures when new horses arrive to the farm is paramount. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with Dr. Pink on, on those. And I was just going to say, even though this is a disease that has been known for so long, it's still um, actively yeah. evolving. Since that consensus statement that we mentioned in the beginning, that was written in 2005 for the ACVIM consensus statement, we're now 10, a little over 10 years past that. There's probably a number of things that have evolved since then and might need to be revisited. And amongst those, we're still facing the same issues as Courtney mentioned with quarantine and testing. There's a number of new tests available now that can be applied and it would be interesting to revisit how those are used in different places and how our recommendations can change based on that. There's new antibiotics, new antimicrobials that at the time the consensus was written didn't exist and maybe in the future there will be new vaccines so there may be some long-term things to look at from here. Yeah. Fantastic. Dr. Christman and Dr. Pink, thank you very much for speaking to me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Next we have Dr. Craig Reinemeyer from East Tennessee Clinical Research talking about a review that he co-authored with Dr. Nielsen about worming juvenile horses. Dr. Reinemeyer, could you first outline why we should make special consideration for younger horses with helmet control? Well, younger horses seem to be quite a bit different in terms of parasite susceptibility and, and the types of parasites that they are infected with, you know, when compared to mature horses. And the major reason for that is probably their immune status. Horses uh, appear to develop acquired immunity to certain nematode parasite as they age and this is actually quite unusual uh, in the world of domestic animals. Uh, there aren't many parasites that mammalian host becomes absolutely immune to but horses are the prime examples for at least two of these. They're Asterisks, uh, which is the Asterid or roundworm and then threadworms which is Strongyloides. Uh, they, they tend to all become infected with these early in life that uh, once they develop immunity to them, we almost never see them again in, in mature horses. So, you know, their susceptibility to these parasites, uh, the major reason is their immune status. And the second one is that some of these parasites have rather unique uh, modes of transmission, which really would not apply to an adult horse. Okay. So with juvenile horses, the article mentions that there is some evidence of antelmintic resistance. Can you, can you summarize that for us? The major type of antelmintic resistance we're concerned about with juveniles is resistant strains of Parascaris. Yeah. And this is only a concern in juveniles because only juveniles get this parasite. But resistance to this, uh, uh, of this worm to at least one chemical class of, of drugs appeared very suddenly about, uh, oh, 10 to 15 years ago, and it was reported almost simultaneously from Europe and from Canada, and this is resistance by the Ascrids to what we call the macrocyclic lactone class of drugs, which would include things like ivermectin, moxidectin, uh, and abamectin, and it, it developed very, very quickly, and unlike other types of resistance, it almost seems to be absolute. You know, a lot of resistance will start out with 
well, it's, uh, it only reduces worm numbers by 75% and then 50%. This stuff went from 100% to 10% or less in about two years, and, and it seems to be very widespread. So, it, you know, it, it's a challenge because the macrocyclic lactones, especially ivermectin, are probably the most commonly used equine anthelmintic throughout the world, and people have always had very great confidence in this product. It was literally a panacea. And, you know, number one, it's a management challenge, but I think number two, it had some psychological impact because up to this point, we've always thought that this was the silver bullet. And I think now that we realize that parasites can develop resistance to the best thing that we have in the in the pharmacy, uh, it's very scary because we don't have too many other options available. Mm -hmm. And there also are some strains of ascarids that have been shown to be resistant to the Pirentel or, or Pyrimidine class of drugs, and in many cases, the only effective drugs against the ascarids on some farms might be the benzimidazoles, which have been around literally since about 1960. Yeah. So in the paper, it kind of handles the different age groups of youngsters. Can you describe why it's important to, to split the horses up into this way? Why is this a useful thing to do? Well, I, I think it's useful, uh, and, and I think it's a rather unique approach to managing parasites because there are so many other aspects of equine management that do precisely this. You know, not just uh, veterinarians, but actually it's breeders and the horse owners. You know, they have a newborn foal, and, and then, uh, you know, it stays with the mare for four to six months while it's suckling, and then it's weaned, and... Uh, later on, it's turned out with a bunch of horses of similar ages, et cetera. And the management for all these different age classes is fairly standardized. So I think it's very helpful to maybe look at this whole structure uh, as a way to categorize parasite control efforts, et cetera. And that's what we tried to do with this article. Yeah, so it's a helpful kind of way of thinking about it. So with newborns, should we start with that? Which helmets are we concerned about with newborn foals? Well, um, there really are two different pairs. Well, there's a, a several different parasites that horses can get, you know, shortly after birth. We only have to really be concerned about one of them, and that doesn't necessarily mean we need to do anything about it from a management standpoint. But the, the two that are most common in foals up to maybe two months of age would be Strongyloides, which uh, is a parasite that lives in the small intestine, and it's most common in foals because the major route of transmission is through the mare's milk. So foals actually become infected while suckling, mm -hmm. and they can have this parasite in their gut within four days of age. They can be passing eggs in their feces within, you know, by the time they're five or six days of age. Most of the time, this parasite doesn't cause much in the way of problems. Now, it can occasionally, but most of the time, the onset is gradual. The disease is not so severe that we have to worry about losing the animal, and diagnosis is very simple with a uh, fecal examination. Traditionally, a lot of practitioners have just automatically dewormed young foals for, for this particular parasite. And I think that's kind of a general attitude about parasitism. And it's certainly one that we see from small animal veterinarians. I think just because they can diagnose the existence of this foreign invader, um, you know, and we have effective drugs that wouldn't kill them, there's just an automatic knee-jerk treatment response to a positive diagnosis and yet there may not be any clinical disease present. And we now realize that, uh, you know, with anthelmintic resistance, we have to be very careful about 
how frequently we use amphiminics. You know, we're really kind of turning away from traditional treatments to uh, treatments based on evidence or clinical need. So, you know, newborn foals may have strongyloides. You have a positive fecal diagnosis, but if you don't have any clinical disease, I think most of the experts would probably say there's really no need to treat. And, and there's even been a program for many decades to treat mares in the last month or so of gestation with a product that would actually prevent transmission of strongyloides to the foal. So that also, I think, is now looked at as overkill. The other parasite in newborns that's of some concern are the aspirids. Again, this is the most pathogenic parasite of mm-hmm. uh, young horses. And, you know, you're not going to have adult worms in the intestine. You're not going to have a positive diagnosis for at least two and a half months after birth. But, uh, you know, from day one, they could be exposed to this parasite and these they could be migrating through the body. So, uh, again, be aware that it's there. But, I, but from a therapeutic standpoint, there's really not much we can do or should do at that point in time, even though we know this thing is there. So for newborns, in terms of antimintics, you're advocating a very much a hands-off approach. Yeah, pretty much so, at least up until about 60 days of age. Uh, Prior to that time, unless there is a specific disease condition present that that can be attributed to a parasite, rote automatic treatments are are actually not only uh, not recommended, I think they're probably contraindicated. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what about weanlings? What changes once the foal hits that weaning stage? Well, by the time they're weanlings, strongyloides has come and gone. You know, they develop absolute immunity to this, so you just don't see strongyloides in the horses after about six months of age, at least not in the gut with, you know, eggs being passed in the feces. Asteroids become a much greater problem because from about 75 to 90 days after infection, they can develop uh, adult worms in the intestine, and these worms can be fairly damaging. They're quite large. They're about the size of a pencil. They can be present literally in the hundreds, so they appear to compete with the foal for nutrients. So these foals may not grow as well. They may have other signs of uh, ill thrift, you know, rough hair coats. They can develop respiratory syndromes with coughing and nasal discharge. Uh, they often have kind of uh, abdominal enlargement or a pot-bellied appearance. But even again, this is not a terribly damaging stage of the parasite, but one thing that can happen with these parasites is if if asteroids die simultaneously in very large numbers, they can cause mechanical blockage of the gut. Uh, And this is literally like a big plate of spaghetti just sitting in there, and uh, if the worms die, they're not going to move around and get out of each other's way, and they will literally occlude the small intestine and when this happens much of the time it turns into a surgical problem and the actual long-term survival of horses that have to undergo surgery for asteroid impactions is is very poor you know maybe only on the order of about 50 percent so you know it's uh, extremely expensive to do the surgery and then you know the odds of long-term success are not very good so, you know, this is a parasite that we need to be aware of, need to be concerned about. And, and actually, it's kind of ironic, but the most common trigger for one of these asteroid impactions is effective deworming. It's, um, you know, about within 48 hours prior to the onset of the clinical signs, the horse was treated with a product that is very effective against asteroids. So it's what we would call an iatrogenic disease, one that's kind of contributed to by the actions of the physician. 
how can we combat that? What would you what would you suggest? At what stage do you think you need well, to treat? Well, norm normally um, these aspirin impactions are much more common in in foals that have never had any anthelmintic treatment or deworming until they're weaned. You know, okay. about five to six months of age. And uh, current recommendations, I think, would be to at least examine, you know, a sample from a foal when it's maybe three to four months of age and consider deworming it at that time if, if it's positive for ascarids because at that age, the worms themselves are not quite as large. They're usually not quite so numerous. And if you can remove that population, now they inevitably will get some more ascarids, but the immunity to this parasite develops fairly quickly, so the second infection would not would be nowhere near as numerous or as voluminous. So I think the, the odds of having one of these very serious sequelae to uh, a deworming go down considerably just because the number of worms uh, that are present is lower if the animal has been treated at an earlier age, like three to four months. Okay. So, uh, you know, and traditionally, I mean, for asteroids, a lot of farms, that breeding farms that raise foals, you know, they would just treat every foal at one month of age, two months of age, three months of age. Mm. And the first two treatments there are worthless. They're not going to do much except maybe select for resistance. So foals should never be dewormed prior to about 60 days of age. But after that period, there is at least one deworming that's probably indicated with a major target being, you know, asteroids at, at maybe three or four months of age. And then maybe consider a second deworming at around the time of weaning. And then after that point, probably 50% of the foals will develop complete immunity to asteroids by that time, although they can still have some until they're yearlings or even a little bit older. So any any deworming for asteroids after weaning probably should be based on a positive diagnostic test. You know, just get a fecal sample and examine it, and whatever horses are positive in that group for asteroids, they should be treated, and the others probably should not because they have very likely developed immunity. Okay. So what about yearlings? How do the helmet populations change within yearlings? Well, when, by the time they become yearlings, ascarids are normally gone. Bronzoloides is long past. But at that point, they begin to acquire all the parasites that we see in adult horses for the rest of their lives. And these are mostly the strongyles, pinworms, tapeworms, bots. And, and of those, I think probably the most damaging parasites are large strongyles, but the prevalence of that parasite on most horse farms has really decreased markedly in the last 20 years or so. And this is probably due to the common use of ivermectin and, and other macrocyclic lactone drugs, because theoretically, if you treat a horse every six months on a regular basis, you can literally eradicate these worms from a farm. And a lot of premises use these drugs much more frequently than that. So that was kind of an unrecognized consequence of that program was they actually ended up eradicating worms in their horse populations. Now, these parasites are still out there, so, you know, if you bring in new horses or, or buy new animals or whatever, or if you go out and look at feral ponies living in a wildlife park somewhere, I mean, they still have these these large strongyles, so they can be reintroduced to a herd. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, again, the, the incidence of these in mature horses is fairly low nowadays, and the, the most common pathogenic parasite we see would be the small strongyles, which, you know, when you examine a fecal sample from a horse and you see a lot of strongyle eggs, traditionally 
percent of those eggs would be small strongyles, even if large strongyles were present. So uh, they make up the vast majority. They're not terribly pathogenic, but they can be present in very large numbers. And this is mostly, you know, a consequence of management. Uh, you know how densely the pastures are stocked. Uh, whether there's any effort to clean up manure out on pastures, whether there's any kind of a an implementing treatment program going on, there's just lots and lots of variables. But you know, when they become yearlings, you will start to see these parasite eggs in the feces. You can see some clinical signs such as diarrhea, weight loss, that sort of thing. There are one or two very severe syndromes, but they're rather uncommon. So, um, you know, this is just basically, uh, from the time they're yearlings on, these younger horses are kind of sliding into adulthood because they have all the parasites that their mom and dad have, and uh, but they are just a little bit more susceptible to them because they haven't developed much acquired immunity or tolerance. Now, unlike Ascrids and Strongyloides, the immunity to strongyles is never absolute. You know, you're always going to see some eggs in the feces, but the actual number of parasites present and the amount of damage that they cause is very much dependent upon host immunity. There appear to be hereditary factors that really make some bloodlines of horses much more resistant to parasites than, than others, and this is actually reflected in the magnitude of their fecal egg counts. Okay. So then we're moving into managing herds of uh, mature horses and what would be your advice on how we can, what we need to look out for and how you would manage a group with new horses being introduced? Well, I mean, anytime the new, ho- new horses are introduced to herd, I think it's a good idea to quarantine the animals for several days. I think it's, you know, to prevent introduction of large strongyles into a herd, you know, if you were lucky enough to have eradicated them, you could bring them back in tomorrow with a new horse. So I think it's a good idea to treat them with what we would call a larvicidal regimen uh, that was that is effective against large strongyles. And there are three different drugs that you could use. Uh, you could use ivermectin or moxidectin, or there's a five-day regimen of uh, fenbendazole that is also effective for removing all the stages of large strongyles within a horse's body. And this could be done shortly after arrival, but then I think it's always ideal to keep those horses in stalls for maybe three to four days, because even if you kill the worms, uh, there still may be some eggs passing in the feces that could reintroduce this parasite to your pasture. So, you know, it's just a good idea to keep the horse in a, in a stall for, you know, the best part of a week and then dispose of the manure, don't spread it on pasture just a secondary means of reintroducing the parasite to the farm. As far as managing parasites in adult horses, uh, again, traditionally we've relied on rotes scheduled treatments uh, at different intervals. I mean, what we've done is taken the annual calendar and we've divided up into handy intervals and we deworm at those frequencies, but that's not how the biology of the parasites works at all. So it's kind of an artificial center of system, but it actually does result in excessive treatment, which we think has helped to select for the development of resistance. The approaches now, I think, are to use dewormers as infrequently as possible. And this is based upon the recognition that if you look at the parasitism patterns within a herd of horses, and, and 
the only evidence we have is uh, fecal egg counts, you know, the concentration of strongel eggs being passed yeah. in their feces. If you look at a, a herd of animals, you'll, you'll find that probably uh, roughly 40% of the horses in any herd always have very low fecal egg counts, regardless of whether they are treated with anthelmintics or not. And these are animals that have some mechanisms, they are general defense mechanisms or maybe acquired resistance, but bottom line is they're controlling their parasites just fine without any uh, chemical additives whatsoever, and furthermore, this characteristic seems to be hereditary. So, you know, if you have fillies and colts out of a mare that uh, has very low fecal egg counts, they're much more likely to have low egg counts than other members of the herd. Uh, and then conversely, you've got about 20% of any herd that will have inordinately high egg counts, called these high contaminators, and they're causing problems for everybody. They are responsible for the vast majority of parasites that are transmitted on pasture, and then there's a remainder of the herd that are kind of intermediate between the two. And it sounds like heresy, but one of the recommended approaches now is that Horses which have been identified as low contaminators, they always have you know, low egg counts. At most, deworm them twice a year, and the objective here is mostly still to maintain the eradication of large strongyles. But honestly, those, those horses could probably do just fine if they never got any anthelmintic treatment whatsoever. Um, high contaminators obviously need more intensive deworming and the deworming should probably be targeted for the beginning and the end of the grazing season and then maybe one time during the uh, the grazing season and the intermediate horses might do fine with just a treatment at the beginning and, and the end of the grazing season but again the approach I think is to identify the contamination characteristics of individual horses as as more or less a measurement of their innate resistance status and deworm accordingly. You know, uh, mm -hmm. it really doesn't make any sense to deworm every horse in the barn every two months when, you know, we actually look at the diagnostic evidence and half those horses have minimal numbers of parasites that really wouldn't require therapeutic deworming if you looked at them on an individual basis. And I think the overall thrust here is to decrease the selection pressure for anthelmintic resistance. You know, we're rapidly running out of effective compounds. You know, the three major classes that we currently have available have been around for literally 30 years or more, and there's nothing new on the horizon. So we, we have to use what we still have, you know, better and smarter. And there are a lot of herds where they may be down to two or maybe even just one effective class just due to, to resistance. Thank you ever so much for reviewing the, the effects that we need con to consider when we're thinking about antimetic treatments in young horses. Just bearing in mind that there, there will be clients that the practitioners will be speaking to, can you think of any useful resources that vets may be able to point their clients towards to explain this fine balance that we're looking at with antimetic use? and antimintic resistance? I think for clients, there are a couple of lay publications, you know, horse uh, equine-oriented magazines. Namely, I think The Horse, published in North America, is, yeah. is one of those, and yeah. uh, Equus might be another. I'm, I'm sure there are several, but I know that I am frequently interviewed by journalists who are, who are writing articles for these lay journals, yeah. and that is the message that we're trying to relay, and I think these articles have done that uh, very effectively, but I think the biggest 
challenge that we have for parasite control in the future is really changing tradition and changing the habit of, of people that, that have been raising horses for decades. I mean, they, there's a lot of tradition in the horse industry. People want to do things the way that Grandpa did them 50 years ago, and we've long forgotten why he did it that way. But, you know, so we still carry out a lot of these rote deworming practices just because we feel that's necessary. And the evidence doesn't really support that anymore whatsoever. And, and I think the biggest challenge, worms are bad enough, but the biggest challenge is changing people's minds about how to do this, what they should be doing. And I think just try to recognize that horses and parasites have been evolving together for about 10 million years, and they got along fine until the first caveman somehow caught a horse and put a fence around it. Uh, you know, when that happened, when, when the horse was confined, could not get away from its own feces, that's when the parasites became more concentrated, and we've done a lot more stupider things in, in recent history to aggravate that whole situation. So. Parasites and horses are, are not mortal enemies by any means, but when you throw in the element of human management to throw to make the advantage much more in the parasites' favor, that, that's when it can become a problem. And, you know, the presence of parasites in horses is not really a bad thing. It's just when either the numbers of the parasites or the horse's physical condition put it at a disadvantage is when we see, you know, these disease syndromes. And I think the uh, the pharmaceutical industry has been very, very effective at convincing people otherwise. You know, that evidence of parasitism is uh, pending death unless you buy our product and lots of it. And not really the case at all. You know, parasites and horses can get along quite well. I think we just have to be aware of not, not letting the pendulum swing too far one way or the other. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Dr. Reinemeyer. It's been a real pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Okay. Thank you, Claire. Thank you.